The scripture reading today is from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 18. Hear the word of the Lord. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do you say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, thank you, Rachel, for reading scripture for us this morning. And again, I want to extend my welcome to you, the gathered congregation here. And for those of you who are gathered online in various places, watching and worshiping with us today. And if I seem a bit taller to you, at least in my mind today, I really am. I'm floating just a few inches off the ground because of three dates and a word that I want to leave with you. First date was June, June 11th. That was our first Sunday. My wife and I, our first Sunday as your senior pastor here at National Presbyterian Church. And uh, it was a glorious day for us. We got to meet so many of you and to be welcomed and to just to experience the wave of what we call the NPC hospitality. It was lovely. And then on June 17th, Father of the Bride in Houston. I'm not going to say any more, but I have the pictures if you want to see them. <laughs> and then yesterday, June 23rd, the boxes and the furniture left the truck, and now they're in the house and I'm also not going to say anything more. <laughs> I think you know what that's like. And then the word that we've been reveling in is the word gratitude. We're reading through the book of Exodus right now. And almost every other page, you hear whine, 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 whine. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Complain, complain, complain. I'm experiencing gratitude, gratitude to God for all of you, for the wonderful staff that I get to work with every day, gratitude to God for all that has been done and is being done just to help us land on our feet. So I'm grateful to God for each of you this morning. And just would you, would you join me in prayer for a moment? Oh God, we do crown you as King of Kings the only wise God, the potentate. We crown you this morning as savior of our lives. We consider it all joy to know that we've been called by you to be your children. Lord, may these words from scripture speak to us today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I'm honored to stand here today and start this sermon series this summer that we're calling 
the questions that Jesus asked. And you may not know this, but Jesus asked over 300 questions. I think it may be more than that. He asked a lot of questions. What I'd like for you to do, if you haven't already, is go to our website and just take a look at the questions that are going to be coming up Sunday after Sunday. The scriptures are there. You can review them. But I have one more thing I want to ask of you, and this is very unpresbyterian, but I'm going to ask it anyway. I'm going to ask you to take that link, and if you would pass it on to the people in your network and say, you know what? There's a Jamaican pastor at National Presbyterian Church, and I want you to come and hear him talk about these questions. But even a bigger reason, that's a very subsidiary reason, but a bigger reason why I'd love for you to pass it on is because you may know people who are asking questions. They have doubts. They're investigating Christianity. People who would love to know more, looking for a church. I would love for you to be the person God puts in front of them. And uh, you just don't know how God can work through your life. So I'm going to ask you and encourage you uh, to do that. And so the questions Jesus often asked, he asked it to a variety of people. Questions to his family, to his friends, to his enemies. Questions to even to God. The wonderful thing about questions, as you and I know, is that they stimulate critical thinking. So many wonderful things have happened in this world because they started with a question. Questions cause us to examine. They cause us to examine why we do what we do. Questions will will cause us to stop talking and do more listening. Questions will nudge us. We live with so many assumptions on what questions do. They challenge those assumptions and they nudge us to greater clarity. Some questions, though, are inconsequential. And some questions are profoundly important. So you decide on this question. Who won the World Series in 2019, and some of you will say, who cares? <laughs> well, you ought to care. The Washington Nationals defeated, they defeated the Houston Astros in a winner-take-all game seven. And you may still say, so what? How does it affect the price of milk? So that might be an inconsequential question. What about this one? What, does, what time does my flight leave? I think that's an important question because you don't want to show up at National Airport after the flight has gone. That could be a problem. Here's another question I think is consequential. When is my surgery scheduled? You want to circle that date in red because if you miss that date, who knows? The consequences to health might be significant. How about this question? Very important question. Who do you say that I am? Some people in our culture would say, so what? That's not an important question for me. Doesn't matter at all. That doesn't register in my reality. Well, I hope to convince you otherwise. That knowing the answer to Jesus' question will shape how you live, and it may even shape how you die. That's how important this question is. You don't want to miss this. So as we heard in the reading from Rachel, Jesus comes to this mostly Gentile district of Caesarea Philippi, 
And once upon a time, Caesarea, this area, before it was called Caesarea Philippi, was actually known as Naphtali. It was an Israelite place. It was a God place. It was a promised land place. But Philip the Tetrarch, who is the son of Herod the Great, rebuilt and renamed the city in honor of himself and Caesar Augustus, or Augustus Caesar, and hence the name Caesarea Philippi. The thing to know about this place is that it is a major political town, a very religious town. In other words, this place oozed with political sycophants. It was politics as usual kind of town. It was a place that was filled with political patronage, but it was also a place where the worship of Augustus was critical. The worship of the Greek god Pan was critical. And the very name of this town, Caesar Philippi, Caesarea Philippi, the very name of the town suggests it's an I'll scratch your back if you'll scratch my back. That's the kind of town that Jesus was having this conversation with his two disciples when he asked the question, the questions. And the first question he asked them is, who do people say that I am? Now, people wonder, was Jesus having a moment of insecurity? Was he checking the live feed to see what people are saying about him? No. He wanted to test his disciples. And the disciples responded to the question, but they were responding and referencing people from the past. Who do people say that I am? One of the disciples says, well, you know, Jesus, they're saying that you're like John the Baptist. He's already dead. Well, they're saying you're like Elijah. It's a wonderful comparison, but again, from the past. And then some of them said, well, you're like one of the prophets. Jesus dug in a little deeper, and he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And that's always an important question. I don't want to hear what other people are saying about me. I want to know what you say about me. And so I say the first question is general, and the second question is very personal and controversial. Jesus has known controversy all his life, right? From the day of his birth. I mean, come on now, it's a baby. From the day of his birth, Jesus was and remains a controversial figure. Herod the Great, when he heard the wise men say, where is he who was born king of the Jews? Immediately, he got angry, vengeful, and he wanted to kill this baby because the baby would grow up to be a rival king. Jesus' claim to be the Messiah to Israel was controversial, and it fell on deaf ears mostly. And so he was crucified as an enigma. To the Jews, Jesus was a stumbling block. To the Greeks, Jesus was foolishness. He was perceived as a threat to the Romans, considered a revolutionary. And either way, they crucified him. But the controversy doesn't stop. His followers then after his death three days later, start walking around, or maybe 40 days later, start walking around spreading the word that Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim, is risen from the dead. Christianity fastened itself, its existence to that claim that Jesus, the Messiah, died for our sins 
and on the third day rose again from the dead. In fact, we just said that in the Apostles' Creed. But the controversy didn't stop. People found numerous ways to try to undermine and discredit that massive theological claim. They wanted to explain it away, the resurrection. And so there was the theory that the body was stolen, the theory that the, the disciples were all smoking something. They were hallucinating. The mythical theory that it's just myth, it's not based in reality. The swoon theory, Jesus was just battered, but he wasn't dead. And once he recovered, he walked out. And then the cover-up theory that the disciples are a bunch of liars. They stole the body, and they're just covering it up. Well, thanks be to God that none of these theories won the day. And the spread of the gospel marched on. But the controversies didn't stop. Now, we can admit today that for most scholars, there are at least three historical data points about Jesus the man that most scholars do not contest. For example, most scholars would say that Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. Most scholars would say that Jesus was crucified by the order of the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. Most scholars would say that Jesus was indeed a Galilean Jew. But that's where things then begin to fragment in the scholarly community. When it comes to the nature of his birth, when it comes to his teachings, his miracles, his resurrection, his ascension, his claim to be God, these scholars assert that yes, there is a Jesus of history and there is a Jesus of the Bible, but they're not the same. Don't confuse them. In fact, the Jesus of the Bible was conjured up by people like you and me and the eons of Christians who come behind us. The controversies about Jesus in many ways came to full flower during the Enlightenment period from at least the 17th to the 18th century. And one of the notable figures of that time was a German theologian by the name of Friedrich Schleiermacher. He was called the father of modern theology. Before there was a seeker emphasis, Schleiermacher was doing that seeker-sensitive thing. He tried to make the claims of the Christian faith more intelligible, more palatable to a modern audience. And in his book, on religion, speeches to a, a culture, to culture despisers, Schleiermacher tried to explain the incarnation in terms like this. He says, for him and for his modern society, we want you to think about the incarnation more in terms of Jesus' relationship and his awareness of God. Let's forget about the mystery of the Trinity. People don't want to hear that. They want, a, they want an approachable Jesus, someone with whom we can relate and who has an awareness of God. He makes this very stunning statement. He says, Jesus, and this sounds very 21st century, Jesus was an impressive human being. He was a super saint, different from us, but only in kind. Such a stark difference to what we were just confessing. I believe in God, 
the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And the high, high statements that we make about Jesus not to be found in Schleiermacher's day. In 1906, Albert Schweitzer, someone brilliant man on so many fronts, wrote the quest for the historical Jesus. He wanted to determine which of the words and actions of Jesus were historical and those which were fabrications. And since then, there has been a second quest and a third quest for the historical Jesus. And in our time, during the much of the 70s and the 80s into the 90s, we heard of the work of the Jesus Seminar scholars, brilliant, brilliant scholars like Robert Funk, John Dominic Croissant, and the late Marcus Borg, brilliant scholars on this quest to unearth the real Jesus. Marcus Borg famously said this, and it's a statement that we hear often around Easter and the resurrection. He says, look, I do believe in the resurrection. He actually said these words at the University of Oregon years ago in a debate with N.T. Wright. And he said, I do believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Ready for this? I'm just skeptical that it involved anything happening to his corpse. And then in 2009... While he was still president of Venezuela, Hugo Chavez called Jesus the greatest socialist in history. The controversies. Who is Jesus? Who is he to you? After more than 2,000 years and then some of probing, what do we have today? You walk out and the main street out there in Nebraska Avenue or down on, on uh, Wisconsin Avenue and stop the person going by. Go to Surfside, which is one place I like to go. Ask the person eating their tacos next to you, hey, who is Jesus to you? And I guarantee you, you're going to get, most likely, this very personalized, stylistic, impressionistic vision of who Jesus is. You'll hear things like, well, Jesus was a great teacher. Jesus was a great prophet. Jesus was a, a guru. He was a revolutionary. He was an enlightened being. Jesus is a role model. And on and on it goes, but it doesn't get us to answer the question, who is Jesus to you? Who do you say Jesus is? And so I find it helpful another way, and you have to understand, I'm a pastor. I'm one of those, Donna, who heard the call. I'm a pastor. To answer the question, you go to the scriptures. And what do the scriptures say about Jesus? Well, Matthew's gospel has this, as we heard in the reading, this magnificent affirmation from Peter regarding not the teaching of the Lord, but rather statements about who Jesus is. And he says these words, and I'll repeat them again. You are Messiah, the son of the living God. And in his letter to the Philippians, Paul writes about Jesus, though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not deem equality with God a thing to be grasped. So Jesus then is not a reflection of the current mood on the, on, or a projection of our own desires. Jesus is our Lord and our God. The opening hymn that we sang testifies to that. He is the Father's Son. He's the Savior of the world. 
He is the substitute for our sins. He is more loving. He's more holy. He's more wonderfully terrifying than we could ever think about. This is what the scriptures affirm about Jesus. And so when Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ, there was more than a touch of revolutionary zeal in what he said, given where they were standing. It was like standing outside of the Kremlin. It's like standing before the gates of the White House, holding up a big sign that says, down with the president. I mean, that's what it sounded like when Peter said, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. Because right there in King Philip's city, dedicated to Augustus, Peter was saying, that Jesus is Lord, that was a shot across the Roman political bow. And if Jesus is the Messiah, if Jesus is the Son of the living God, as Peter says, then friends, it doesn't matter how modest the church may look. And I'm listening very intently as our, our brother from Ukraine was giving his presentation this morning as he talked about what has become of the church in Ukraine. And yet the church is still very much alive. It doesn't matter how imperfect the church might be, whatever the state and the condition might be, because the history and the future of the church depends on King Jesus. And we have this promise from him National, I want you to hold to this. I want you to sink deeply into this, that Jesus promises to build his church. And there is no one in the universe, there is no power on hell, there is no scheme of man that will ever stop and destroy Jesus' church. So my question to you this morning is to bring it home even, even closer. Does knowing Jesus matter? I'm talking about your Sunday 11 a.m. life. We all would say, yes, he matters. I'm talking about your Monday life and your Tuesday life. I'm talking about your life as a man, as a husband, as a father. I'm talking about your life as a woman, as a mother, as a wife, as a single person as a teenager, as a college student. I'm talking about you as a retired person. Does Jesus matter? And as your newly minted pastor, you know what I'm going to say. I'm going to say yes. Knowing Jesus as revealed in Scripture matters for how we're interpreting suffering and evil in the world. You say, well, why is that so? Knowing Jesus helps us understand suffering and evil to some extent. Because what you and I will say when times get hard, and I've done it, I have a friend of mine right now, a family in Chicago. We've been praying for this young man for years. And we got the news this weekend that he died. Glioblastoma. Young man, young family, his children are barely in fifth grade breaks my heart for them. I wish I could be there. And we've been praying for them for years, and I'd say, God, what's going on? Why does this happen? The tornadoes, the floods, the earthquakes, the, 
the wars that we hear about. Why? And often on some days when we feel beaten down by the troubles of the world, we, 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 we have the thought in our minds for a moment that God doesn't really care. God is somewhere out there, but God is indifferent to my pain and my tragedy. And the vision we have in our minds is we want God then to show up. If only God would show up, as the psalmist says, if you would just rend the heavens and come down. I cry out to you. I lift my voices to you. My tears have been my food. My bed is wet with my tears, and yet you are still silent. God, where are you? I have a feeling you're right there with me. You have said those things, prayed those things, felt those things. Maybe you are angry with God. But I come back to the scriptures again because what the scriptures help us to see is that God is not indifferent. God is not impotent. God is not removed. God is near. The gospels tell us that God came near. The word became flesh and lived among us, tabernacled among us, moved into your neighborhood, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. And I'm here to say to you this morning that because of Jesus' suffering, Jesus is not, God is not indifferent to the sufferings that you and I are going through. He knows what we're going through. And he cares about what you're going through. And he is with us. He's the great high priest. He's with us in our suffering. And he will and has and will continue to sustain us. One verse that helps me arrive at that conclusion is where the psalmist writes, the Lord is close, listen to this, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. Or in Isaiah, where it says that he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Or I love Paul's prayer. Three times he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did not shut the doors of heaven. The Lord answered the prayer each time by saying, my grace is sufficient for you. It matters in helping us understand pain and suffering. It matters for life in God. That's the second reason knowing Jesus matters for life in and with God. And again, if you're watching or you're here and you're investigating Christianity, I would encourage you, as I've done to countless people, start with Jesus. Read the Gospels. Read the Gospels. If you really want to experience and understand what it means to be in union with God, start with Jesus, start with the Gospels, because at the heart of Christianity, it's Jesus. Jesus said these words. Some people find them offensive, but I'm going to share them with you. Jesus said these words, I, speaking of Jesus, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And if we don't know who Jesus is, it's impossible to have a relationship with him. If we can't understand his love for us, if we can't understand the sacrifice that he made for us, then we will have difficulties understanding what forgiveness means. We will, we will live in, a, in the bowels of shame, and there would be no hope for our sins to be forgiven. 
We can't come to Jesus through our smarts. When Peter made that wonderful declaration, Peter says, Jesus said to Peter, it's not flesh and blood that revealed it to you. My father revealed it to you. I like to use the analogy of my relationship with my wife as a way of understanding what it means to be in a relationship with Jesus. And this is what I think sometimes. Imagine if I spent my days and my nights closed up in my office studying, analyzing the historical records of my beloved wife, analyzing her birth, studying her formative years, analyzing our first date, trying to establish if she is who she really is. And all the while, Judith is on the other side of the door saying, there's an easier way. Open the door and let's talk. But that's what a lot of people do today, even our scholars. And, and, I, and trust me, I have utmost respect for those scholars in the Jesus Seminar. I am not belittling Friedrich Schleiermacher. I'm not doing any of that. I'm just saying that Jesus, if we come to the scriptures with humility, will reveal himself to us. And that's what Jesus did when he asked Peter the question. God revealed it to you. So the first and the most important thing any person needs to understand about Jesus is that he is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. The Nicene Creed says he is very God of very God. And if he is not God, then his death would have no value with any other, any other person's death. No value. There would be no hope for us. But because he is God, his death has infinite value and he is able to take away our sins. Do you see that? Can you believe that? And if you can, it is because God has revealed it to you. He's blessed you. He has demonstrated his grace towards you because salvation is 100% from God. So my prayer this morning for all of us is that we will know Jesus not just through a book. We will know him intellectually. We will know him experientially. We will know him savingly. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and God's people say, would you pray with me? Open our eyes, Lord, we want to see Jesus. Open our ears, Lord, and help us to listen. Open our eyes, Lord, that we might, with Peter and saints who have gone before us, confess you as our Messiah and our King and as the Son of the living God. We pray this in your name. Amen.